You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. This is, I believe, episode number 69 of the show. Since I've gone to this uh, weekly format, they've uh, been piling up faster, obviously, because of math, I guess. And uh, joining me today, I have two very special guests who I'm going to get to in a minute, but I am, before I get to them, uh, Danny Anderson. I always forget to introduce myself in the show. I'm Danny Anderson, who uh, works at Mount Aloysius College somewhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, And uh, today we're going to be talking uh, Infinity War. Um, Apparently, Congress has mandated it that every podcast has to do an episode on Infinity War, and so this is our our time, and so we're going to uh, be talking about this today, Um, and it fits weirdly into our normal cycle of jumping all around the place with no apparent reason or rhyme. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we did something on Oscar Romero, and then we did something on some leftist uh, politics and uh, and controversy, and so today, of course, a Marvel movie, so that's kind of what we do, Uh, and so um, today... um, uh, I want to uh, introduce my new my two cohorts today. It's uh, Nathan Gilmore from uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast. Nathan, how you doing? Doing all right, Danny. Uh, wrapped up finals week last week, and now I'm in uh, day two of my intensive Maymester class. So teaching four hours every morning, and then prepping in the afternoon <laughs> for like two weeks, right? And, and about that. Yeah, yeah, about that. And then you sleep for a month, I guess, after that. So, um, um, well, and joining us today is uh, Kristen Philippic. Kristen is like the Kaiser Soze of our network, I think. <laughs> She's like, you always hear about her, but she very rarely appears in, in personal form. But Kristen, welcome to the show. How you doing? Thank you very much. Um, yeah, Kristen, if you don't know, is our press liaison. If you listen to Christian Humanist Profiles uh, and enjoy that show, you largely have Kristen uh, to thank for that. She arranges these uh, interviews with heavy hitters. She got the Bruderhof people on my show. She's uh, uh, Her dad was on a show. <laughs> We're talking about uh, free college uh, some months back. And so, yeah, Kristen's our... Our sort of uh, our our mole out in the in the world of important people, and so and uh, we're very grateful for to have her as part of the network here. Um, so today, uh, I want to do a little preamble before we start talking about Infinity War. I'm going to talk as if I don't like this movie very much, um, but that's not true. I actually enjoyed this movie very much. My biggest, uh, I guess, uh, complaint or whatever is that I feel like people like it too much, <laughs> so I feel like just impulsively the need to push back on all the, the glowing love for this movie. So if it sounds like I'm a hater on this movie, I am not. I actually saw it twice uh, on opening weekend and I saw it once with my wife and then took my daughter and we saw it again and, uh, and I actually enjoyed it more the second time. Um, I do have certain criticisms of it, um, but I do think it's a really, really cool movie. And for me, by far the most interesting Marvel movie um, yet, even if it is not the best of them. And so um, I want to sort of get into that. Um, but first, uh, I want to just give a little bit of background. So we're our first question. Oops, sorry. One, 
Issue one. There it is. Sorry, I had it muted. Uh, a little tribute to John McLaughlin. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, Nathan and, and Kristen, and where this sort of sits in in place. That they were, they've been around for about ten years now, and uh, they've been pushing these things out in phases. Uh, phase one included Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man Two, of course, uh, Thor, Captain America, The First Avenger. And then the Avengers. Phase two was Iron Man 3, Thor of the Dark World, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron, and Ant-Man. And phase three is where we're kind of resting right now. Civil War, Doctor Strange, Guardians 2, Spider-Man, Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, Infinity War. And then there are three more movies that I found listed uh, in the plan for phase three. Ant-Man and Wasp, Captain Marvel, and an, an untitled Avengers film, which is part of my critique about that. We all know it's Infinity War Part Two. They just didn't want to say that. But um, and so <laughs> this is uh, uh, where it stands. And I guess I, Nathan had given me a note. I forgot to read the note, and it's written in bold and all caps. Be sure to announce that we're going to spoil every possible plot detail. Quote with impunity right and so uh if you have not I, seen someone else wrote with impunity so uh <laughs> oh, whoever that... threw the edgar Allan poe in there <laughs> go that... ahead and own up to it now that must have been chris that was me i thought that was our catchphrase we spoil with impunity <laughs> yes nathan you did say that at one point actually so... <laughs> oh did i re- okay well yes. I, i've taught cask of amontillado too many times then <laughs> well so if you have not seen the show the movie yet uh by all means know that we are going to tell you everything that happens um so um, given that list, where do you guys think, and I guess I'll start with Nathan and move over to Kristen, where does this movie kind of sit in that big arc of this, these first three phases? Well, it's interesting. I, I remember in the first Avengers movie of uh, Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes, but uh, Nick Fury was talking about phase two and it, it involved, you know, using uh, basically the Tesseract technology to create, you know, anti-superhero weapons. And as a plot device, that kind of dropped out of the movies. No one talks about that anymore. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, they still talk about the movies as phase one, phase two, phase three. So it's one of those interesting things where I think it had its roots in the films themselves. But now it's just part of the marketing. Uh, You know, this is, you know, certainly an audacious experiment in movie making, Uh, you know, as, as people have noted in a number of places. And, you know, of course, people have mocked it with various, uh, threads on Twitter, uh, you know, to make 19 movies that culminate in Infinity War uh, is something that people really haven't done before with movies, right? Uh, So as far as that goes, you know, I mean, Phase 3 really is the place where the Guardians and the Avengers and Spider-Man and Doctor Strange all kind of inhabit the same plot line at the same time. They're interacting with each other as characters in ways they haven't before, uh, and, you know, I, I, because I'm a, you know, comic book nerd from the late 80s, uh, I just think it's great that uh, Thanos is the grand bad guy that draws all of them together in this plot. Uh, you know, Infinity Gauntlet, uh, you know, when it dropped, uh, gosh, how old was I? 13, 14 years old. Uh, so I hadn't started driving yet, so I still had money for comic books. So, you know, <laughs> this is definitely the part of... Uh, you know, my, my comic book reading years, uh, that I remember best. So, I mean, you know, that, that's more of a a personal reflection than anything. I mean, Kristen, when we were doing, you know, pre-show, uh, pre-game as I like to call it, 
you mentioned that you haven't really read that many comic books. Your your exposure to these characters is pretty much from the film. So, I mean, for you, I mean, you know, where does Infinity War fit in all that? Well, um, I, I knew the characters that are just part of popular culture. I knew Spider-Man and Hulk before all this started, but that was it. Um, so I, I certainly see how at the beginning they were building up to the first Avengers film where... Uh, the team was building up, um, and at this point, there are, there have just been so many strains coming together. And I've seen I've seen some of the Marvel films, but by no means all of them. Um, at one point, um, Hulk says, "Wait a second, there's a Spider-Man and an Ant-Man." Like, I sort of resonated with that quite a bit. Um, so to have to have this massive conglomeration of all these characters uh some of whom i feel like i know their stories pretty well and some of them not at all um it was sort of tricky to keep track of all the different strains um and i feel like i understood the story of of this movie just fine but it probably would have been a richer experience if i had seen all the previous ones before um, but and plenty of people have, but I'm not that much of a of a fan of this series. Yeah, and I have to say, I think that you've hit on one of my criticisms of this movie is that I think that it wants to like have these like intense relationships between the viewer and all these characters that they've introduced that we've lived with now for ten years, right? Um, and so there are certain moments then where you can tell they're kind of pushing those cinematic buttons where they're trying to like draw out these emotions from us. But I don't think that this movie gives it enough time to actually work. And so for example, and I think Alex Gennetti said this on a, on a blog post that I wrote on the website um, about the love trying or the love story between vision and Scarlet witch, not ever really having been developed enough for us to care all that much about what's happening at the end right, of this movie. Right. right. And I think he's totally right. Um, and I think that you're, you're hitting on the fact that even though they've been developing developing this over um, 10 years, um, we've seen versions of these stories. And I think I have seen all of those movies now. I think uh, Ant-Man was the last one I hadn't seen. Um, but uh, it's still, for some reason, it's too much to juggle. Um, and I want to point you to um, kind of friends of the show. Um Chris Maverick and Wayne Wise have both been guests on the show um, for various uh, topics in the past. They've started their own podcast called the Vox Populorum um, podcast. It's uh, that's a blog and a pop- podcast that they run called Vox Podcast Popcast, excuse me. Um, and their recent episode actually is about. Um, creating a big cinematic, like a franchise, right? Uh, and so it's actually, I think, a pretty good um, follow-up to this question here. Um, and one thing I would also say, I would add to this, is I feel like this movie feels like, it doesn't feel like the end of Phase 3. It feels like the end of Act 2 in a play, right? That where you, um, you're you ending on some moment of uh, of terror or something and that leads into act three so if you're looking at all of these movies as one coherent whole i feel like 
this is really the end of phase two in a lot of, of act two, if it's not phase two of their, of their cinematic uh, uh, whatever system that they've created here. And so that's how I'm kind of taking this movie. And it's another reason I'm irritated more, more so with the marketing of this movie, which is meant to be, this is the end of phase three. Right. And it's clearly not there's black Panther just made like a billion dollars in the hospital, in the box office. They're not going to kill off black Panther. Right. And they just finally got spider. Man in the universe, they're not going to kill off Spider-Man, right? And I did not buy it, and I felt it was crass and 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 terrible. And so, just the way they marketed this movie as the end of something was just really annoying to me, <laughs> frankly. Um, you could, you want to follow up on that, Nathan? You look like you're. Well, I mean, you know that they're they've got to do something with it, and I mean, this is you know part of the social media atmosphere that makes this a weird phenomenon is that. You know, there are already rumors going around about when they're going to start shooting on the next Black Panther movie. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, if you if you try to be a strict new critic and stay inside the film, I guess you could be emotionally shaken by, you know, the disintegration of Black Panther. But who lives exclusively inside the movie? Uh, I certainly don't. Right. So, yeah, that that's certainly something that, uh, again, in the comic books, that kind of thing, you know, obviously was happening in 1990 when they brought together not only the Avengers and Doctor Strange, but also the Fantastic Four and the X-Men together for the Infinity Gauntlet series. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, within the comic books, all of those are, you know, properties that had already been going for decades. And so, you know, it was just kind of part of the there's always the possibility that they're going to, you know, to use the, the, the current phrase re- reboot the universe. Yeah. But, uh, there wasn't really a sense then that, uh, you know, they can't kill off this character because they're making too much money because Marvel comics was all one company and they were, you know, they could shift around their resources in a way that even Disney cannot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, that's, um, uh, a great way to sum up the, this is a weird movie when you think about it. And that's a great way to sum up the weirdness. It does not stand on its own by itself. And so I know some people are like frustrated with it for that reason. Um, and I think you've, you've hit on exactly why. Um, but honestly, I mean, empire strikes back can't either, you know, it ends on that note that kind of demands a third film. Does it not? But no one denies that that's, you know, that is most people's favorite Star Wars movie. It's certainly mine. Yeah, yeah. I actually like Rogue One. That's my that's my new favorite one, actually. Um, but no, I see what I, that's a, a total aside. That doesn't diminish your point. Uh, you're totally right. Um, I I just I feel like that movie's better made though. Um, and and it does the investment with the, the emotional investment that Kristen's talking about. I think, um, in a in a better way than than this movie is able to do. Um, I, I I felt like this movie wanted to be Lord of the Rings. And they realized that, oh, crap, we can't do that because Drax always tells a joke when it gets serious. Right. And so what they tried to do was shortcut that with um, the this kind of like phony uh, emotional manipulation that with the people just disappearing into dust. Right. And that kind of thing. Uh, and so I, and I just feel like. Um, and in fact, I saw a couple of quotes in, from Lord of the Rings, like in the, the battle scene in Wakanda, the one guy says something like, oh, this will be the end of Wakanda. And then the lady says that it will be the most glorious end of all time. Right. It's like something right out of the two towers. And then the three main 
you know, heroes walk up to the the battlefront and talk to the villains just like they do in Return of the King, uh, at the at the at the battle in front of Sauron's gate, right? And so I feel like this movie is trying to be Lord of the Rings, but it can't because it's a Marvel movie and it that irritates them on some level. So, um, again, I really like this movie though. <laughs> Even though I'm talking about like I don't, so um, so let's move on, uh, Nathan. Before we get into the movie itself, you wanted to talk about the background, and I think that's interesting because I literally know nothing about Infinity Gauntlet. I missed all of this, and so do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then Kristen and I can I can or Kristen and I can just uh, whatever do our best to keep up with you. <laughs> Sure, I'll try to keep it relatively brief. Infinity Gauntlet was the first of three uh, crossover events in Marvel Comics in the early 90s. Uh, It was followed by Infinity War and then Infinity Crusade. And in each of them, it involved the assembly of the six Infinity Gems, as they called it then. Now they're Infinity Stones, of course. Mm. Uh, And in the first one, you know, uh, Thanos assembled them. And what's interesting is that the death of half the universe happens fairly early in the storyline. And actually part of the storyline is all of the heroes on Earth trying to figure out what in the world just happened. It's much later in the storyline that they connect with Doctor Strange and find out that there's this being called Thanos that just wiped out half the universe. Uh, The other thing that's notable about it, there's a few other things. One is the presence of Adam Warlock, who got teased at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Uh, he was really the chief of the anti-Thanos effort. Uh, he did not appear in Infinity War. Uh, and then Mephisto, uh, the character, you know, from, you know, Christopher Marlowe and Goethe, who becomes the, you know, comic book nemesis of the Silver Surfer, uh, was the constant companion of Thanos in those comics. So Thanos in that version is this sort of dark chivalric knight Uh, except instead of, you know, trying to woo Lady Guinevere or, you know, the wife of, of Sir Bertilak and Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, uh, he is trying to woo death. Uh, and so the reason that he does it is very, very different from the film. And we'll get to this here in a little bit. Uh, it is to present the ultimate gift to his lady love. So he is this cosmic knight in the infinity gauntlet later on the infinity, uh, you know, he loses the gauntlet, how he does so isn't all that important. Uh, in the Infinity War, Magus, who is a sort of bizarro world anti-Adam Warlock, gets the gauntlet and once again, you know, wages war against the universe. And then in the third one, a figure whose name I didn't look up prepping for the show, so I'm sorry, Danny. That's right. But who is sort of the entirely order-obsessed side of Adam Warlock, the way that Magus is the chaotic side of Adam Warlock, gets the gauntlet and basically enlists all of the most moral superheroes to wage war against all the morally compromised ones. So what was fascinating there in the mid nineties, uh, kind of at the end of my comic book reading days, uh, is that you had your captain America and, you know, invisible woman and Spider-Man and Thor and all of the genuinely morally good superheroes threatening to destroy the universe because of their goodness and the universe was relying on the Hulk and Wolverine and all of the morally compromised ones to save the universe. Mm. So, I mean, part of it is just that, I mean, because comic books don't require special effects and actors, you can make a lot more of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the budget isn't as big, but, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, a lot of cool things happen that get picked up in this one, right? I mean, you know, in this one, uh, Thanos in a lot of ways acts more like the super principled Adam Warlock figure 
than he does like the Thanos from the comic books, right? And I think that's a cool appropriation move in that respect. But that, that'll kind of be the end of my little, uh, you know, nerd out there from the early 90s. Um, Danny, you say that you didn't read any of the Infinity Gauntlet No, um, art. No, okay. I, I've sort of Wikipedia'd it, <laughs> and so that's about my my uh, kind of uh, depth that I've gotten into it. I do think that your kind of distinction. I remember in the, when we first see Thanos in um, the Avengers, uh, when he uh, one of his people tell him after we have defeated the Chitari that he sent to destroy the Earth, that to to face them is to face death, and he has this no, little, it's to court to death. court death. Excuse me, that's right. So yeah, I mean, in that moment, everyone who read comic books in the nineties. I mean, just jumped out of our seats and threw our popcorn. It's like, oh my gosh, yeah, we're gonna get the Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> but then they drop that that motivation, um, and so, and I think it's interesting the the distinction between I think you wrote it as Thanos as Dark Cavalier versus a Thanos as Super Bentham. <laughs> you wanna, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really it changes his motivation, right? I yeah, think. he is so principled that he's willing to kill half the universe to pursue his principles. Yeah. And really, I should have said Super Malthus rather than Super Bentham, but yeah. I was scribbling down those notes quickly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very interesting. Um, Kristen, do you have anything to inquire or, or add? One thing that struck me, um, and maybe I'm just going off on in the wrong path because I'm, I'm not familiar with the source material, but there was such pressure from the studio and everyone else to avoid spoilers on this. Yeah. For a book or when it's drawn from something that has been freely available for <laughs> 25 years. Yeah. Um, and this isn't to that extreme, but I, I, I was just thinking of seeing very earnest people offering spoiler free reviews of darkest hour this winter. Yeah. It's like, I know what happens at the end. <laughs> like that's not what the movie's about. <laughs> Well, that, but ultimately, that's why they changed the name. Originally, this was Infinity War Part 1, and then the next one was going to be Infinity War Part 2, and they thought even just calling it Part 1 was too much of a spoiler, right? Um, but to me, that was the most obnoxious thing about this movie was just the denial that this is Part 1. Um, and I felt like they only did it in order to create uh, like manufacture an emotional um, attachment to these characters at the end, right? Because otherwise, the actual deaths that we see before Thanos's sort of magic deaths um, aren't all that compelling, frankly. I mean, Loki dies at the very beginning, um, and it's like I didn't feel like what I should feel. And when Gamora dies, like in the way she died, I felt like I saw what they were trying to do, but I didn't feel what they want me to feel. Right. And so, and I just feel like that the, the movie just unable to manufacture, honestly, the, uh, just unable to elicit, honestly, the emotional, uh, imp or the emotional response from its audience that it wants to. And so it's, going into these sorts of uh, marketing gags <laughs> because you're right. We all know what's going to happen <laughs> from the beginning. So, um, well, let's, although I will say in their defense, and I know ahead. you're not Please supposed do. to defend these people, no, 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 but, them. Yeah. uh, you know, the fact that, you know, the initial trailers, you know, had Gamora saying he can wipe out half the universe with a snap of his fingers. Immediately. The question arises are the same characters who died in infinity outlet 25 years ago going to be the ones who go this time. And we knew that couldn't be the case because, uh, you know, a lot of the folks who were wiped out in Infinity Gauntlet were Fantastic Four and X-Men and other franchises right. that Sony or Fox has rather than 
Disney, right? right? So they had a much more limited cast. So to wipe out half of them is a much bigger hit to this roster than it is to Marvel Comics. Right, right. And and just on that note, Marvel has just acquired 21st, 20th Century Fox, right? And so ostensibly now, I mean, Disney has, excuse me, uh, ostensibly now they can like transfer the X-Men back into this universe um, somewhere down the road as they have with Spider-Man here. That was We're before. never going to see Hugh Jackman fight Thanos. It won't be Hugh Jackman, right? Um, but yeah, I think that they can... Uh, they can uh, they can definitely draw on those characters later on down the road, and maybe not in this phase. It might not be part of this uh, this story, but Marvel is working their way towards you know reconquering their universe cinematically here. Um, so I, we have a list of things that we want to talk about. I put out a call for listeners. Um, I love my loyal listeners, and I love to hear you guys' uh, uh, takes and questions. And so, uh, can we take a couple of those and see where they where we go with them, and then uh, and then yeah, man. jump back into uh the questions that we have prepared so carly gihorn um just asked can she have her money back for that wasted two hours of her life (laughs) i can't do that for you sorry maybe in the moment you could have gone to the theater but uh i don't think it's i don't think it's i think that time has passed unless you get the time stone you can go back um and uh and out yes <laughs> but uh um but victoria reynolds farmer uh from um the christian feminist podcast of course um she has a really interesting question about the character groupings um she thought that they were interesting in terms of the way they let similarities and differences show us patterns of growth we might not have otherwise noticed noted and what she's talking about i think is the way that um the story is told over the over you know time over space basically throughout the universe and so iron man doctor strange and spider-man and most of the guardians of the galaxy are grouped together on thanos's planet um thor is grouped together with rocket raccoon um which is and and groot which is really interesting and who else is grouped together doc captain america and falcon widow they eventually join up with um, Bruce Banner, who cannot turn into the Hulk. Yes, he's got some and Hulk impotence going yes, on. Here. Yes, yes. <laughs> Although they already used that joke up in 2012. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So that's in Vision and Scarlet Witch. I think they all get together and then join the Black Panther crew. Um, and so, um, and, and there's so many characters. There's probably somebody I'm forgetting right now. But I think that's an interesting question. What do you guys think about the way that those groupings? Um, help develop this story in any way. Well, I'll go ahead and talk about the one that I found least satisfying, and that was the Thor, Rocket, and Groot trio. Okay. Uh, and it's largely because, you know, Thor Ragnarok did something really cool with that character to turn him into more of a satirical character. Uh, you know, I mean, he was commenting on the universe that he inhabited and critiquing it in the course of Thor Ragnarok. Right. And like I said, you know, for a very serious character from the first two Avengers movies and the first two Thor movies, that was a really interesting move. But then when you put him in with Rocket and Groot, who are also from a very wisecracking franchise, for whatever reason, the three of them just couldn't get any chemistry going. And instead, you get this very, very serious sequence with, you know, the entirely superfluous Peter Dinklage as a giant dwarf (laughs) and a star forge of some sort where they get the magic axe. And, you know, really in my mind, I mean, they kind of wasted that 
post Ragnarok Thor Mm -hmm. that really could have been doing some interesting scenes with other characters, I thought. But when Thor is not your straight man anymore, like he is in the first Avengers film and the second Avengers film, he needs a straight man and you didn't give him any. That's a really so good point. That, that, that's my critique of the, uh, the, the Groot rocket Thor trio. Yeah. Um, and actually Katie Grubbs and Laurie Norris both, um, were interested in Thor, um, as a developing character in this universe. I think that he really did hit his stride, as you say, in Ragnarok and they kind of figured out, how to use him. Right. And then you've, I, that's a good point. They may have dropped the ball a little bit um, with this, uh, this version of him in this movie. Um, yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, Kristen. Um, so I was thinking about uh, Dr. Strange and Spider-Man and uh, Tony Stark um, and Tony Stark and Dr. Strange are both awfully full of themselves. Oh, like yeah. that, <laughs> like that, that's the defining uh, feature of both characters. Um, and to have the two of them come together, I thought it sort of uh, softened both of their edges mm. somehow. And to have the almost paternal relationship that Tony has with Spider-Man, Peter Parker, um, brings out a whole different side of him that we that we hadn't really seen before uh, Spider-Man came, or before Peter came on the scene. Yeah, and and so then we're starting to see more that that gives us more of a contrast um, between Tony and Doctor Strange, who has no emotional connection with these folks yet. Um, so I, th- I think that showed some of the development we've seen in Tony Stark from the, the first Iron Man, Iron Man film. Yeah, I like that that trio as well, because we, they are grouped together first before they join up with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Once they get to uh, Thanos's planet, which I forget the name of it. Uh, Titan. Titan. Thank you. I knew it was some, <laughs> which is kind of a weird name. I guess it's probably from the comics, but because we have a Titan in our universe. Right? But um, the uh, but the idea that Tony is kind of like a flawed father for Peter. Um, Nathan and I talked about during our episode on, on homecoming on Spider-Man homecoming. And I was wondering if that was meant to be kind of a handoff, like who knows who comes back and who leaves the universe, uh, like when in the second infinity war movie. Um, but I felt like Dr. Strange would not take any of Tony Stark's bull crap. Right. <laughs> I think. And, and at one point he says like, unlike everyone else in your life, I don't work for you. Right. And I think that was a really telling statement is that Tony Stark's power is an economic one at its heart. Right. All of his powers or technologies he's developed through um, his, you know, industrial means. Right. And so um, I think Dr. Strange, his power is much more kind of, humanistic uh and and it's magical and and that kind of thing and so as a kind of you know competing father figure for tony stark i think it's really interesting um for peter assuming that they both get reanimated uh, at the end of (laughs) in the next one but yeah i think that uh it's a really interesting way to uh to develop peter's character I, i can think a little bit by putting him in that little triad nathan yeah, and then you've got, you know, the 
the so serious that it hurts group of Captain America, Black Panther, Black Widow, uh, you know, Winter Soldier, Falcon. Uh, and then, I mean, you got this was my favorite grouping because then you had the utterly goofy, almost slapstick Bruce Banner. I mean, and this recurring gag of I can't get my Hulk up. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I just thought, I mean, it was just a hilarious gag just going through, you know, this ongoing, you know, Hulk, we need you right now. I know you like to wait till the last minute, but now's when we need you. And then it doesn't happen, you know. Uh, like I said, I mean, because, and I love Captain America, I think, you know, of the, uh, you know, title heroes, he's probably had the best title hero movies, you know, mm. between Winter Soldier and Civil War. I think they were the strongest. Yeah. Uh, but he is so serious. Uh, so, I mean, it was nice to have uh, Bruce Banner in there. I mean, just, you know, being the the bumbling, goofy, hey, look, I've got Iron Man armor on. How cool am I? <laughs> you know, kind of vibe going on, right? And then, you know, at the end when, you know, basically you're left with the headliners from the 2012 Avengers movies, right? I mean, what's fairly obvious is that, you know, whatever happens next is going to have to involve getting that crew back together after we've had these other, you know, these three side crews. And I think that's going to be an interesting reunion to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it really works. And I think ultimately the grouping that works the least for me is the guardians of the galaxy who have, they have no place in the seriousness of this of this uh, drama, right? I mean, Peter Quill's actions uh, are just totally nonsensical. It's like the actor can't figure out what to do with him in the situation that he's put been put into um, because it's just totally out of the uh, the realm of what we've seen from Guardians of the Galaxy. It has like I mean, it's the least serious of all the Marvel franchises, right? Um, and and one of the best. I love the I love the two movies, right? Um, but to stick them in this movie and expect them suddenly to be um, Aragorn and Legolas, you know, it's just it's not going to it's not going to work. I think and so um, um, we have um, other questions. Here, some of them are quite long, uh, but uh, if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, um, you can find a blog post, a little blog post that I wrote about just kind of a quickie theological thought that I had about Thanos and um, and having godlike power without God's grace, right? And and so, um, Adam Sorber, who's like a really dedicated listener and commenter on all of our social media, um, he has some really interesting thoughts on this. Um, and I hate to read the whole thing <laughs> because it's very long. And so I do want to point you to that though. And, and I think that you'll, um, find some, uh, a really interesting pushback on what I'm saying here. I want to save one of Adam's comments when we start talking about Tony Stark versus Thanos as kind of doubles for each other. Cause he kind of disagrees with you a little bit, Nathan. So I want to hold off on that one a little bit. Um, but if we go over to our Twitter, uh, and yes, the Sectarian Review podcast does have Twitter, um, we have uh, a, quite a few um, comments here that came up. Uh, one is from um, Chris Buckley, who's also another kind of uh, friend of the show, I'll call him. Um, Infinity War shows how ingrained Protestant fundamentalism is in the American psyche. Millennialism is the flawed lens through which we frame the end of the world and the religious slash heroic response. How would the story be different in a culture without millennialism? I think that's a really interesting question. I think uh, I think Chris is uh, a Catholic, and so um, he has, I think, a really interesting perspective on this. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? 
I mean, it's clearly uh, this sort of Armageddon that it's setting up, right? And it is drawn. It's almost what the Left Behind books could have been. You know? Although what's interesting, and I actually never thought about this until I saw Chris's comment, is that Infinity War came several years before the first uh, Left Behind novel. Mm. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, posit lines of influence here. Uh, but, you know, the idea that, you know, a super powerful being snaps his fingers and half the universe disappears, uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll certainly grant that, you know, Larry Norman songs came along before Infinity Gauntlet did. But uh, as far as a visual depiction, I think Marvel got to it before Left Behind did. But it was I mean, in Kristen. I mean, yeah, you probably got something more serious than that to say about it. <laughs> oh, I, I'm not as familiar with this world as I think you guys are. Um, so I, I was sort of stumped on that one. I, I, at one point I wanted to do a show and maybe this is a good opportunity for someone out there, maybe Chris, uh, to start thinking about it. Um, I, I wanted to do a show about, sort of apocalyptics uh, in general. Actually, that's the name of Derek Varn's book of poetry <laughs> that I'm going to be, I'm going to be reading here uh, and, and having him on the show to talk about that. But I, I do want to do a show about sort of the, I mean, even in the secular mind, there is this sort of end of the world built into things. I mean, we see it in all the talk of global warming, all in the, you know, there's been these periods of movies where you have Armageddon in 2012 and all that kind of thing. Um, there's something in the American imagination and the Hollywood imagination, at least that, um, I think is just fascinated with the idea that the world must end. And I wonder if it has something to do with this uh, ingrained Protestantism uh, that's <laughs> that's maybe genetically part of the American culture. Um, I, I don't know what to make of it, Chris, but I think you raise a really good point. And it's certainly, you know, American fundamentalist Protestantism, you know, especially from that, you know, uh, Holman Christian Standard Study Bible. I think that's the one that you know had. Or I might have the wrong Bible here. My, uh, I'm almost certain that's the wrong study Bible. But there was a study Bible that was published that had all of the end time stuff baked into it. Right. Yeah. I think there's also something you know to be said for the Cold War as a mm. period that you know put that image in people's heads. You know, I mean, I and and it's terrible. I mean, I'm I'm either so young or so stupid that the first thing I think of when I think of the cold war threat of annihilation is Dr. Strangelove. But I mean, that's the image that I get, right? The doomsday device that's going to wipe out the population. So, I mean, I, I, I think there's some Protestant in Protestantism in there, Chris. Uh, but I think there's other ingredients baked in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a really dense question. It fits right into something I've been thinking about kind of just informally for a long time. And um, maybe this is an excuse for me to pick up that show. So um, if anybody has any ideas out there listening, feel free to contact the show. Uh, go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com and you can figure out how to message me about that. Um, and then Michael Farmer, um, our friend and colleague, Michael Farmer, um, has a really interesting, like, I guess, political philosophy take on this. Uh, Thanos as liberal utilitarian. The Avengers are foolish not to let vision sacrifice himself because they conceive of themselves as anti-utilitarian. Um, I think that there's definitely something there. I think um, you guys have thoughts on that. Um, that is a thread that they definitely let drop in infinity war. The fact that Tony Stark is the ultimate utilitarian. I mean, that is the plot line behind age of Ultron. That is the plot line behind civil war. 
that, you know, Tony Stark has such an ego that he thinks that by his, you know, technological savvy, he can save the world. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's the great confrontation with Cap in Age of Ultron that, you know, uh, had, you know, I, th- I think encapsulated, you know, what's really interesting about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that you actually had differing philosophies. Right. But in this one. And again, I I want to call it a missed opportunity as far as the writing goes. They swoop Tony Stark off of the planet. Yeah. So quickly that he was never part of the conversation about how will the world confront Thanos. Yeah. That became exclusively a question for Captain America and Black Panther to handle. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, and that kind of a, a nice predictor of our Thanos, Tony Stark discussion, Kristen. It also seemed. So, so Captain America, Steve Rogers is the one who's so adamant that we can't let vision just sacrifice himself be, and his phrase that shows up a few times is, we don't trade lives. Yeah. And that just seemed kind of strange, given that Cap's a soldier. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I, I'm not a military person, but a chunk of the idea, I think, is they are willing to sacrifice themselves in order to save the wider society. Yeah. Um, and... And you d- certainly don't do that willy-nilly, but that's part of the expected deal. Uh, so, so to have our soldier, um, World War II hero, be so adamant that this is off the table seemed odd considering his background. It does, yeah, it doesn't fit very well. You're exactly right. And my wife pointed this out, and um, and we're going to talk um, at the end of the show. I think the last question I have is going to lead into this sort of environmental discussion that I'm hoping will spin off into a show between Kristen, um, my wife Kim, and and myself about maybe not specifically about Avengers, but um, but further on. But one of her responses to this uh, movie was. So Cap's insistence that they don't trade lives leads to essentially the destruction of Wakanda, right? I mean, in order to not trade Vision's life, how many lives in Africa did they trade um, in order to try and save Vision, right? Um, um, and so that's a really weird, um, oh, I guess, uh, contradiction. In, in It's an incoherent philosophy in a lot of ways, right? Um, but in some ways not, because, I mean, even within you know, just war tradition, you know, there's a distinction made between killing in combat and killing prisoners of war, uh, which is why, you know, people who are interested in just war were so horrified uh, during the Bush administration at the, you know, the public acclamation of torture as a valid act within a war. You know, it's not that, you know, uh, they suddenly became anti-war because, you know, they were still willing to kill but, I mean, going really as far back as Kikoro, I mean, you've got a strong sense that to kill in the course of a battle is somehow to involve randomness in it and to involve, you know, uh, fortuna to, you know, grab hold of another classical word. But that once you had them as prisoners, then, I mean, you have a responsibility not to abuse them, Right. Um, and you know, part of that has to do with, you know, the ethics of surrendering in battles and so on and so forth. But I think that might be something that is animating that distinction within Captain America's, you know, two, um, standards when it comes to this, right. 
because obviously, you know, he doesn't have any um, problems with people dying in a fight, right? Sure. His enemies or his allies. But when it comes to, you know, doing it as a sort of technological, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, a, a, as an act of unresisted power, he's not willing to do it. And that strikes me not as a break with military ethics, but as a continuation of military ethics. Hmm. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Kristen, did you want to follow up on that? Um, this is maybe a bit of a tangent, uh, but I was thinking a lot about the principle of double effect in a lot of these. Um, and at the end, when there seems to be absolutely no other alternative, Scarlet Witch is putting all of her energy towards the stone. Um, and she her action is to destroy that uh, knowing that it will also kill vision, but that was not what she was doing. That was going to be a side effect. Yeah. Um, in contrast to Scarlet Witch at the end, who is destroying the, trying to destroy the soul, the mind stone, I guess it is um, to keep Thanos from getting it. All of her energy was, was focused specifically on the stone. Um, and she knew that killing vision was going to be a side effect of that. But that wasn't what she was doing. Um, in contrast, uh, Gamora did not want Thanos to be able to get the information she knew. Yeah. And asked uh, Peter to uh, to promise to kill her if Thanos got his hands on her, if it came to that. Um, and, and he, it's it's obviously a real struggle for him, but he tries to do what she asked him to do um but he can't do it that the the gun he had just just turned to bubbles yeah and then later on able to do this terrible thing for a good reason um whereas scarlet witch wasn't directly doing a terrible thing so i thought that seemed to be an, an illustration of the principle of double effect and that was a a limitation for the good guys, whether they were intending to or not. Um, the, the order of the universe wouldn't let them do that. Yeah. That's a really great observation, Kristen. Um, and I loved the, um, the compare because I had forgotten cause Quill does try to make the sacrificial move and, um, Thanos jokingly turns his gun to a bubble gun right um and so it's almost like he's picking up the guardians of the galaxy trope of undermining every serious moment with a joke right um but it's also a moment where he says i like this guy or something like that it's like he sees the utilitarian uh in in him that um uh painful as it is he's willing to make the sacrifice that thanos then ultimately does make himself when he throws gamora down that cliff uh, thing that happens to her with the, with the soul stone. And so, yeah, that's a really interesting um, scene to bring in in comparison to this. Um, Nathan, any other thoughts on that? Uh, the only other thing that I had in mind is that, you know, in this interesting mix. And I mean, you know, that, that I, Danny, I, I your uh, comment at the beginning that this might be the most interesting Avengers movie. I, I, I think I might agree with that is that you've got this strong, you know, Thomas Malthus, you know, we've got to limit the population in order to save the world ethic that Thanos has. Yeah. But then concretely, you've got this reenactment of 
uh, Agamemnon and Iphigenia going on mm. where he has to, you know, kill his daughter in order to wage his war. Uh, and I mean, it, it, so, I mean, that mixture of a very modern philosophy uh, with this sort of archetypal uh, ancient, you know, child sacrifice story. I mean, just I, I found it fascinating. So uh, I'll, I'll agree with you that, I mean, you know, this this blend of elements uh, to whatever extent it was intentional is, is really a fascinating thing. Yeah, I do feel like this movie was striving for something, right? And then I think in striving for it, it met its limitations that it set upon itself in the last 10 years, right? This franchise. And so um, I, I, I totally agree. I think that there's a lot to talk about with this movie, more so than any other Avengers movie, um, which kind of usually devolve into very kind of typical conversations about capitalism and whatnot, at least on this show. And so, uh, yeah, I think this one opens up um, itself to a lot of approaches. And I think I got all the questions um, that I've um, done. Chris Maverick actually um, previously had made a a really interesting um, observation about the Thanos's power. So if he has God's power, why doesn't he just double the size of the universe rather than kill half the people in the universe? Right. Uh, why don't he just make the earth twice as big to make more room? If that's ultimately the problem, I think he raises a really interesting question about the kind of limits of Thanos's power. I don't know. It, it, it's a really good, um, it's almost like the, why doesn't the Eagle just fly Frodo to uh, Mordor question, right? Right at the beginning. Um, and so, yeah, what would, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Uh, because it wouldn't be as good a myth. I mean, good. you know, why doesn't Menelaus <laughs> just get himself another wife? You know, because then you don't have a Trojan War. I mean, what, yes. and what fun would it be then? <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, um, like, thanks to all the people who um, chimed in. If I somehow missed your message, I apologize for that. Keep sending it to me. I'll get to it next time. Um, let's get into some of these things, and let's get into the Thanos as a super powerful Tony Stark. This is something that um, you uh, you claim for him, and I think it's an interesting claim, Nathan. Yeah, I think that, you know, within the group of movies that we're talking about, you know, Tony Stark has emerged, you know, really from the first Iron Man, you know, all the way through the second Avengers and Civil War uh, as someone who, unlike Captain America, who's always his foil, is interested in trying to anticipate and prevent anything bad from happening. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, it backfires, you know, in spectacular ways and in most of those cases. Uh, you know, whether it be that, you know, Jeff Bridges gets a hold of the technology and makes it super powerful or whether it's that, uh, you know, Ultron becomes, you know, convinced that, you know, wiping out the human species is really the way to make the earth safer. Uh, or whether it's, you know, that the Wachovia is it Sokovia or Wachovia. One of those is a bank. One of them is so- uh, Sokovia. Sokovia. So- <laughs> Sokovia. <laughs> But at any rate, uh, you know, that's going to keep, you know, the Avengers from being able to do battle with, you know, the genuine threats that arise. Right. And I think that Thanos, you know, is a greatly magnified version of that. Right. Because what he sees is that, you know, the universe is overpopulated. And, you know, what we're going to do is before the universe reaches its breaking point and ends, we're going to kill off half the population because that's what the universe needs. I'm just sure of it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that, you know, um, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, Adam Sorber's objection to that, I mean, I think that uh, on a psychological level, 
Uh, he's got some definite valid points there. Uh, my point, though, is more on a mythological level. Mm. Uh, Thanos is, you know, the grand, super powerful mirror <laughs> of what Tony Stark has had to learn not to be. Yeah, I see that. Um, yeah, I think the way that Adam puts it on on the website is Stark is a hero indeed, but not in thought. Whereas Thanos has like noble aspirations, but his actions then are sort of monstrous, right? Um, and so um, in that way, they're kind of opposite sides of the same of the same coin, right? Um, um, Kristen, do you have thoughts on this one? I started off thinking that Thanos records the death. But I was told wrong. It's clearly related, but that's Thanatos. Um, but, but surely in any situation, there are other possibilities. And he jumps right towards, let's just get rid of a bunch of the people and then end the problem. Yeah. Which isn't as, which isn't as far off much of our modern world as we might like to think. Yeah. And and I'll get to more of that uh, later on because I I remember the outline here. Yeah. Um, but that just seems the easy clean solution. So let's go there, uh, rather than adjusting consumption levels or developing more resources or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. So that- there's, a, there's a a pull there. Um, that that seems the easy way out for some reason. Yeah, and that's actually one of Chris Maverick's points, too, that he makes in my post is that um, ultimately, I mean, the Earth is going to repopulate. He's just going to have to do this every 60 years or something like that, right? Um, and, and so just to sort of maintain this balance. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that your point, Kristen, about us, none of us being that different from that, that was the point I was trying to make in that little blog post that I, I wrote for the website um, was that, I mean, his solution doesn't ultimately look that different than any political solution <laughs> that we have for any problem. It's always, you know, to benefit someone at the expense of someone else. Right. And, and so in one form or another, it won't look as monstrous as Thanos's um, uh, a solution, but yeah, there is some problem there for sure. Um, um, Nathan, uh, the death of Spider-Man. This is another one of your questions. And, and then we'll um, shoot it over to Kristen here after that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll i confess that, I mean, I found the death of Spider-Man horrifying in ways that I didn't find the death of Loki or the death of Gamora even. Uh, and I think it was that, you know, father-son dynamic that they've been building up. Uh, but for whatever reason, the fact that he was apologizing to Tony Stark as he was dying was what got to me Yeah, that, you know, he had this uh, sense of guilt that somehow this was his fault. And that just struck me as, you know, something that, uh, you know, with his mentor, with his authority figure, you know, that's a, that's a terrifying emotional experience along with the very literal terror of, you know, being wiped out at the snap of a crazy God's fingers. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, uh, you know, the, the memes on, you know, social media have all centered around, I don't feel so good, but I mean, it's the, I'm sorry that I found just utterly terrifying in that scene. Yeah. Um, Kristen, did you have anything, any thoughts on Spider-Man? Oh, uh, so of all the people who turn to dust at the, at the end, he seems to be the only one who knows what's happening before it happens. Yeah. Uh, everyone else just sort of seems confused. Um, for a second or two. And that's probably his spidey sense coming into play. Oh. 
That, right, I, I heard somebody else say that, but um, that clarifies it for me, though. Like, I always found that to be troubling, but that's actually a legitimate answer to that. That's a, that's that's awesome. So that just having that knowledge, which is part and parcel of his particular superpowers, uh, makes the situation much more horrifying than the other people who just. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, um, and yeah, that was I mean, Spider Man's sort of my you know favorite hero, and 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 so to me, I um yeah, I found that to be like, if I thought that it was final, like by that point, I'm like, oh geez, here we go, and and so by that by that point, if I had thought that that was final, it would have been really moving for me, but I just sort of the the I guess pragmatist in me knows that that's not going to be. Um, and, and end for him. And so, yeah, I totally agree with that. Nathan, you've written something here about a Catholic polemic um, about the smile. Well, of I mean, Thanos. you know, at the end of this movie, you have the character whose name is very close to the Greek word for death. And Kristen, thank you for catching the extra uh, tall and Omicron there uh, that I always miss when I think of this. Uh, but, you know, you have the figure of death smiling at the fact that, you know, with his ultimate power, he has killed half of the universe. And, you know, I, I, you know, what I was thinking of when I wrote that little note is, I mean, you know, uh, for all of the scorn and all of the, you know, abuse that people have heaped on, you know, the culture of death as a, you know, phrase of, you know, political concern, uh, Thanos is in a very straightforward sense, the culture of death personified Mm. and he wins at the end of the movie and nobody's nobody's happy happy about about that. Um, and so Nathan uh, brings up the whole Catholic thing here, and I think that's a great introduction to what um, Kristen was interested in uh, joining the show for. You immediately kind of approached me with this uh, whole Pope Francis thing, and, and I think it's really interesting. And I think it ultimately is going to spin off into a, a its own like a, its own franchise, if you will, its own its own show. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Kristen? Well, I was really struck by the motivation of Thanos here especially since that's very, very different from the source material. Um, And depending on how you think about abortion, I don't know anybody out there who's saying we need to slaughter a bunch of people and then the world would be fine. But I know a lot of people saying, uh, gosh, we're all having too many children. Mm -hmm. And the, the solution here needs to be to stop reproducing so much. Um, I had a, I remember a good friend of mine uh, when I was uh, meeting her new baby, who at that point was about three months old, was saying, gosh, I've done one of the worst things I could ever do for the environment. I made a new little consumer. (laughs) And that was 99% and several decimals tongue in cheek, of course, but not quite a (laughs) hundred. And... and I had I had sort of heard of uh, a book, and then I think it became a television miniseries called "The World Without Us." Yeah, imagining what would happen if uh, all the human beings just sort of disappeared, um, and what would disintegrate first? Um, if you don't ever fix your roof, it won't take that many decades for the for your house to fall apart, um, and what would last on for longer? Um, and it's descriptive, but there's also sort of a, 
at least I thought there was a, a wistfulness here. Like, wouldn't this be great if nature could just reclaim itself? Right. Um, and at the end of it, his proposed solution is, you know, if we drastically decreased our birth rate to one per fertile woman, um, within about a hundred years or so, the, uh, the global population would be about where it was in the 19th century. And that would probably be reasonably okay. This came out in 2007, um, by which point we'd seen a one-child policy in China for quite some time and should be able to see full well that this does not lead to utopia by a long shot. Uh, <laughs> like this, this is not a new idea. People have tried this and it's, it ended really badly. Um, but uh, it, this was on the short list for some major book prize. The, uh, the blurbs on the, on the back are positive reviews from, you know, various mainstream sources. This was not considered horrifying and crazy, um, but it sort of should have been, I thought. <laughs> um, and in comparison to that, I was thinking of uh, Pope Francis's first encyclical from 2015, um, which was building on a lot of tradition before then. This wasn't a totally new idea, which instead of placing the, the blame for environmental degradation on humans, full stop, um, he talks a lot about human greed and human overconsumption. Yeah. And that's, that's the issue here um, on all sorts of different levels, um, whether it's uh, very personal individual choices or wider political structures and everything in between. Uh, but there's one particular sentence in here towards the beginning. Um, let's see. To blame population growth instead of extreme and selective consumerism on the part of some is one way of refusing to face the issues. It is an attempt to legitimize the present model of distribution where a minority believes that it has the right to consume in a way which can never be universalized since the planet could not even contain the waste products of such consumption. Um, besides, we know that approximately a third of all, of all food produced is discarded, and whenever food is thrown out, it is as if it were stolen from the table of the poor. Mm. <laughs> and so it's, you know, that's one, one paragraph uh, out of about a 150-page letter, but... There are, there, there are very serious environmental problems um, which we probably should be drastically restructuring many of the ways we live in order to address them. But that would be hard and difficult. And so, you know, let's just not have so many, nearly so many people and that'll take care of it. It's a pretty common uh, sentiment, I think, for a lot of people in our society. And so to see that as this huge villain in pop culture was really striking to me. I think that's brilliant. I think everything you just said is spot on. And I think it deserves its own space to talk about in, in a full episode. And and I, I just, I mean, just briefly want to follow up here. I think you're exactly right. He's got this political agenda that 
focuses on not the systems, right, that, that lead to the problem, but he blames life itself as the problem, right? And, and so I think it's in his preservation of the universe. It's like an anti-life uh, pre- um, philosophy that drives this preservation of the universe. It isn't the way that we organize our consumption and, and distribution and waste products um, that um, that is causing the problem. It's the fact that we exist at all, right? And I think that that's the ultimate, um, uh, like, I guess it's a philosophical problem that leads to all of his bad decisions after that. I think it's just, just a great, great um, observation you've made there, Kristen. Um, Nathan, do you want to follow that up? Yeah, it's reminiscent of that, you know, Frederick Jameson line that, you know, Slava Zizek picks up that, uh, you know, we find it easier to imagine the end of the world than we do to imagine some way to live other than as a capitalist society. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you know, again, Thanos is that personified, right? Uh, so on the one hand, you know, he is the culture of death. On the other hand, he is the lack of imagination that, you know, keeps people from reorganizing like, like, you know, Kristen was just reading from the encyclical. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great observation as well. He's almost like the embodiment of neoliberalism, um, in, in that way. He's, uh, which makes him like Tony Stark. Hello. <laughs> Here's the whole point. You know, my daughter hates point set match checkmate. <laughs> My daughter hates Iron Man. I had to drag her to this movie, uh, and when she saw that Iron Man survives while while all the like good superheroes die, she was really mad. Uh, and I think I think that'll be reversed in the next one, uh, honey. Don't worry about it. But I think you're totally right. I think that um, what you've um, you guys have both hit on. I think the the core thing that's really interesting and provocative about this movie, um, and and it's on. It's like I think it, you are the villain embodies this sort of like anti-life philosophy that if we look deeply at ourselves as a society, we are enacting in our own, in our own ways. Right. Um, I think that you guys are are right on the money there Um, going forward. Now, I think I have no idea what these various stones do. I know the time stone. I mean, I get some of these things, the soul stone, I have no idea what it's for. Right. And so I think that there's a lot of like conversation to be had about the, the nature of these stones and how they work together to uh, and what they contribute to power to this godlike power I guess um, I don't know that we have time to get into that here unless you guys have a quick answer <laughs> for that right now um, Nathan seems to <laughs> well I mean you know again going back to infinity gauntlet and they've changed so much here that uh, you know who knows what they're gonna do but I mean the soul stone was integral to the defeat of Thanos in the 1990s. Uh, and I mean, it had to do with, I mean, and again, this is what comic books do so well, uh, this meditation on the nature of soul, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, among the six stones, I mean, this is the one that Infinity War spent the most time and the most attention on. Yeah. So I have a hunch that something about the nature of soul is going to be inherent in the defeat of Thanos in this iteration as well. How they're going to do it, I don't know, but uh, I reckon we'll see. Well, that would make sense then that Doctor Strange, with his sort of metaphysical powers and, and his look, peering into the future, his plan probably has, I mean, he's probably the one to enact this, right? Um, or, or to at least uh, to facilitate other people to enact it as well. Um, and yeah, so I think that there's definitely something there. I, one of you wrote in the notes that, 
the people who survive are generally the people who were around for the first Avengers, right? It's all like the newbies who are, um, are disappearing. And, and I think that's one reason that it's so shocking. I fully expect that to be, you know, quite a bit reversed, you know, in the, in the sequel to this movie. But, uh, but it is something to, uh, uh, to, kind of dwell on a little bit i think the old well linger. and honestly that was part of the brilliance of the marketing yeah is that the week is that the wednesday before this thing dropped everyone was a hundred percent sure that cap iron man and thor were gone yeah 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 for <laughs> and sure they end up being three of the only ones who remain yeah 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 and again it's another nod to the two towers is like the old linger on while the young die and, and young perish right uh, it's one of uh oh, theoden's uh um uh, laments in that movie right and so yeah i feel like this movie's reaching to be lord of the rings i don't think artistically it reaches there but intellectually and just sort of conversationally this movie like opens up so many awesome conversations and i'm going to like demand Kristen stay on the line after we hang up with the call and we're going to schedule this uh full like exploration here of the uh of the encyclical and i think this sort of environmental um question um and, and not just environmental but just a, a how environmentalism fits into a larger kind of pro life uh, in its fullest kind of definition um, ethos. I think that this, uh, this movie is a great jumping off point to that. And I think it deserves its own space. And so I'm going to like, like request politely uh, that Kristen <laughs> come back for that uh, and, and sit here with my wife, who's very passionate about the, the environment as well. And, uh, and, and we'll have that conversation here hopefully very soon um, in the next couple of weeks. My hope is so um, do you guys have any final thoughts on this, uh, on this movie or this episode? Kristen, I'm I'm pretty much spent. Yeah, what do you? How about you? I think we've covered what I had to talk about. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Um, I do have one more John McLaughlin. Out of time. Bye bye. <laughs> but uh, before. <laughs> I don't know why I just love the McLaughlin group so much, um, but uh, I thought I'd incorporate him into my show. He's, you know, he's dead. And so now he lives again in the podcast world. Just So it's fitting to the show. Um, if anybody out there listening has any uh, follow up feedback, you want to bounce it back or push back against anything that we've said here, go on to the uh, Facebook page. I always like it when people like the Facebook page. It, I think other people see that and it tends to, uh, to grow the conversation in that way. Feel free to comment there. Um, we have an email address that people don't use that often. I don't I guess I don't think I ever mentioned it, but it's sectarianreview at gmail.com. And of course, there's the website, um, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Um, we have a Twitter account. It's at sectarianreview. And um, iTunes is a, an important way for um, to spread the word uh, about this show. So if you go to iTunes and leave a review particularly, I think that does something to the algorithm that other people are able to see, uh, to see what we're doing. So, um, I really do appreciate you guys joining me for the show. Um, I enjoyed this conversation. I knew that this movie was, um, like interesting, like I said, and, uh, and I think that you guys have um, shown me a lot of the reasons, ways in which it is interesting. So I very much do appreciate that. Um, uh, both of you are welcome to come back often and, uh, have a great day. <laughs>